Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and the renewal of our world. We're so glad that you're listening. Okay, so I'm going to start with this question. This, this was not my question a week ago to kick things off today, and it became my question about four or five days ago, I think, sometime midweek. I'm going to, I'm going to ask it, and then hopefully it will relate to where we're going in this series. What, what is it that actually changes things? What happens to actually change life? Or, or you could, we could go macro here, like what changes the world? What is it that actually changes circumstances in people's lives? What is it that changes humanity? And if you're thinking, okay, I've got a lot going on this week. I'm trying to figure out my financial goals. We've got some crisis happening at home with relationships and family. Uh, I don't think on that level uh, what changes the world, what changes things. And I don't think a lot of people walk around day in and day out asking the question, what, what is it that changes things? I want to suggest that they do, and you do, and we do this a lot. Uh, we were in Florida a week ago, and on opening day of Oppenheimer, I left my family and drove 20 minutes down the highway to the closest theater I could find to, to go to the movie on opening day. And a lot of the world is actually talking about Robert Oppenheimer, the man who created this device that could potentially lead to humans eradicating ourselves. You know, the nuclear bomb. And it's, it's, it's such a morbid thought, and yet much of the world, a lot of it has to do with Christopher Nolan too, we're talking about this man that we've never really spent a lot of time thinking about. And you care very much about political issues, issues that divide, issues that hopefully will change the future for your children. These are things that we carry to work with us that are in regular conversations in our neighborhoods. We think on some level, even subconsciously, what is it that actually creates change? Good kind of change, hope. What can actually make a better life for my family or for the future? I'm reading a book called Lincoln's Last Trial. This is a fascinating story. Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer, and in the fever pitch of him becoming talked about as a Senate candidate and maybe even a U.S. candidate, a presidential candidate, in the 1850s, As a lawyer, he decided at the last minute before going into this presidential election to take on a murder case. And he defends a hometown 21-year-old boy who has admitted to killing someone. And it's it's just a fascinating premise. So I've started reading this book, and I'm learning a lot about not just the way Lincoln thought in 1859, but the way he acted. I'm learning about his behaviors and why he chose certain things that would actually influence the next six or, you know, five, five or six years of our country and really change the world in many ways. And we have such detail about the way Lincoln thought, the way he thought about the world, the way he was thinking as an early presidential candidate. We have these details because of this court case and the court reporter. Robert R. Hitz is his name. 
He recorded so much detail in what Lincoln wore, his facial expressions, when he chose to sit quiet, when other lawyers were arguing. We have so much detail over the course of a few months of Lincoln's life, it really informs us about where Lincoln was, what he was thinking as he became a presidential candidate. Okay. It reminded me of Luke. Luke, who wrote two books of the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he also wrote the book that we call Acts. Such a a detailed account, you could almost sort of relate Luke to a court reporter. We have so many details about the life of Jesus and the Acts of the early church. This is, Acts is the record of the first church in history, the church that Jesus started with his immediate followers. The events that that happened coming out of Jerusalem because of this church and how it led to the world changing. Now, the, the, the technical name of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. I think a, a better title would be Acts that Changed the World because the world has never been the same since this first church in Jerusalem. All right, so we're going to look at something here that I believe speaks very much into the heart and passion of who we are here at Dulles, what we're about, what we live for. And in this series about practicing the way of Jesus, actually becoming practitioners of his voice, of his heart, of his attitude, his worldview, how we treat the people around us, what leads to actual change moving us into the redemptive hope that we all crave, we all want. We can be part of that today, but we don't live out changing the world and seeing hope become reality in our world by just attending church and listening to another talk from somebody else on stage. That is not how the world changes. The world changes when we actually step into the space of looking like and sounding like and behaving like Jesus. And the book of Acts tells us how the first followers of Jesus in the first church acted. So where we pick up here in Acts chapter 2, thousands of people are visiting Jerusalem for an annual festival. There's a lot of food and there's celebration because of something that God has done in history. They do this every year. Thousands, Tens of thousands of people are in the city when they are noticing the activity of these followers of Jesus. There are hard-to-describe phenomenons happening, like miracles There is speech and there's acts of love that the people are trying to get their heads around. And then the rumor starts that these people have all become essentially, I mean, this is our vernacular today, alcoholics. Like, they're they're drunk. This is a group of people that are just, they wake up in the morning and start drinking. And Peter stands up and says, that's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy. Let me tell you what's actually happening. And here we pick up in verse 22. He's explaining, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves already know. The various towns and cities that they come from, Jesus most likely visited. Most of these people visiting Jerusalem have encountered Jesus, either personally, certainly by word of mouth. They know about The talk that he seems to be from God. He's claiming that he is God. He's done things that we can't explain. He spoke with power but also love. And so thousands of people have encountered Jesus. Well, Peter's saying, you know this. 
This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to, a, to the cross. So the context is that these people think that Jesus, wow, there was something exciting about him. There was something that seemed remarkable. We couldn't even explain, but it ended because he died on the cross. Peter continues, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This sounds like a theology statement, like a line that should be in the Bible, and it is. We just read it. It sounds very spiritual. But in Peter's language to the listeners, to these people who are trying to figure out what is happening in this city, there are these inexplicable acts of love and good and remarkable. What is going on? And Peter is introducing thousands of people to the idea of life beyond death. Yeah, you saw something remarkable. You saw something extraordinary when you encountered Jesus. Well, let me tell you how extraordinary it's become. Death couldn't hold him. He's actually defeated death. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible even for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we, the apostles, and all these followers of Jesus that you're trying to figure out what's going on, we are witnesses to his life after three days in the tomb. In other words, the world has changed, and it's changed forever, and there's nothing that will ever happen in human history. Not some guy named Robert Oppenheimer, not world wars, not inventions, not SpaceX. Nothing, nothing will ever compare to someone has arrived who has power even over death. Renewal has begun. Humanity has been spiraling into division and chaos and jealousy and family divisions. And we say, yeah, well. <laughs> That's describing our world today very well. But what was introduced with the resurrection is now God has turned humanity in the direction of moving us back toward Eden. That is the end of the story. We are moving back toward God's original plan. And we, you, get to be part of this. And so the natural question by these people Hearing Peter explain this is, well, how can we experience this? How can we be part of it? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, they're compelled. They want to taste this. They want to experience this. Peter replies, and again, in English, and whether you grew up in church or not, or maybe what you've understood in society, this is going to sound like very high Bible talk here. But stay with me. This is so, so groundbreaking into how things actually change, how the world changes, how humans change. Peter replies, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent doesn't mean, hey, become religious. Start sounding religious. Make sure you never miss church. Become very sacramental. That's not what repent. Repent 
was a word that was very uh, ordinary in the early Jewish language. Uh, in the Greek and Aramaic language, the, the, this word simply meant to change trajectory. You're going in this direction, reverse course. And be baptized. Baptism isn't just some kind of religious symbolism that we do. It's somehow important to God. Baptism is stepping into water that symbolizes we actually can picture the tomb. It's being buried in the tomb and then coming out of the tomb with Jesus to this new life that every one of us is craving. Peter's saying, identify. Actually step into the resurrection. Move yourself into this new power that has descended on the planet Earth. There is an ability now for dead things, lost things, broken things, guilt, regret, mistakes you've made, things that haunt you to be reverse, reverse engineered by the creative love and power of God where you actually come out of it expressing life, experiencing good, living in hope. So turn from your own control, stop living with yourself in control, this is what repent means, actually give over your life to the one who now has power over death, and give yourself the visual aid, step into the tomb. And fortunately, Jesus' instruction to be baptized isn't morbid like, hey, go find a tomb somewhere. Go find a casket and crawl into it. Close it for a few seconds. And then, I mean, how morbid would that be? That's super creepy. He geniusly gives us water as this visual aid for us to step into and understand I'm about to allow this water to represent my burial into the tomb of Jesus. He went into the tomb with my death, my old my defensive attitude, my quick reactions, my anger, my past hurt, my guilt. And he walked out of the tomb without those things. And baptism is experiencing that. It's allowing us to say to one another, this is my story. Jesus took the old me and buried it, and now I'm walking in life. I'm thinking differently. I'm behaving. I'm, I'm practicing a new way that actually per perpetuates life, even to others. The world doesn't actually change. This is what Peter's telling us. This is what's so monumental about this, this, this explanation of Peter in Acts chapter 2. The world doesn't actually change when the people around you finally start acting the way you want them to. This is the way we're taught. And maybe it's hard to admit, maybe you don't think in this kind of paradigm that your frame of thinking of the way the world changes is when the other people start thinking and acting the way you want them to act. But that's reality. That's reality in America today. We're taught this in school. We're taught it really from our parents. We're taught it just from life and society. We live as if the world will get better if the other side, if the people who vote differently than me, if the people who act like morons down the street, if my kid's classmate's dad would get his act together, if they would finally soften or if they would actually have an attitude change, if they would become better listeners, the world would change. 
Peter's telling us the world changes when you change. This is the beginning of what changes humanity. What we all want. We're sick of division. We're sick of two sides hating each other. We're sick of cancer. We're sick of bad news. We're sick of a world that just continues to discourage or leave us disappointed. We are craving what we were designed. We spent so much in the series talking about why do we practice Jesus? Because we were designed originally as humans to image God. His creativity, his love, his good, his beauty. We were designed to replicate, to be co-creators actually. Genesis 1 Gives us the context. God is creator. He made one species, one being called humans. Men and women made in his image. And when we're living out the image of God, we're actually co-creating. We're replicating life. And you will never stop craving that. This is your deepest longing. In financial planning, in career development, in starting a family, raising relationships, friendships you crave... In all of our deep craving, what we ultimately are wanting is to express the image of God as we were designed to do in, in, in the garden. And the world changes when you and I allow what turns dead things to life to rule us, to be in control of us. Jesus himself. By the way, we're not going to put this on the screen, but if we kept reading a little further, we'd get to verse 40. And Peter says this interesting phrase, so save yourselves. Give your lives to Jesus and save yourselves. And it's interesting, even casual observers to Scripture or just kind of maybe even the world of religion, people maybe who aren't even followers of Jesus, they would probably say, wait a minute, I know enough of the story of the New Testament to know that Humans can't save themselves. That's kind of the story. Jesus came to rescue humans because they can't rescue themselves. It's interesting language. Why does Peter say, so save yourselves? By giving control of your life to Jesus. It's because we're rejecting rescue. We are rejecting the very thing that makes humanity more and more the beauty and love and creativity that we want it to be. We're rejecting that when we choose to remain in control of our lives rather than align our purpose, our heart, our attitude, our future with Jesus' control. Rejecting Jesus' rescue is condemning yourself. John, John chapter 3 tells us this. We know John 3.16. God loved the world so much he sent his only son. But John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but to save the world through him. And then verse 18 is really interesting. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not followed or believed in Jesus. What, what Scripture's telling us is Jesus didn't come to the world to condemn and judge and tell you how bad you are. We are choosing to remain in our broken, decreating state. Our, our limitless, our, our limited, broken state when we remain in control of our lives. And this is part of what Peter's saying. When he says, repent, 
Be baptized. Step into resurrection. Step into this new era and experience where you will begin speaking and thinking and behaving with life over dead things. If you remain in control of your life, if you remain your own God, you will continue experiencing the hopelessness, the deep yearning or craving. I wish there was something that would make this world better. I wish there was something that would secure a great future for the people I love. All right, here we're getting to the crux of what I want to just put in front of us as practitioners of the way of Jesus. Verse 41. Those, and you know, these thousands of people standing there that day listening to Peter, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized. They actually did what he said. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church grew by 3,000 people. This is the very first church. It's only existed for about 40 days. I mean, this is 40, 43, 45 days after Jesus' resurrection. 3,000 people surrendered control of their lives to this new, what's come to planet Earth, this new, wow, I'm trying and I'm trying and I'm trying to make sense out of life. I'm trying to be in control of my life. I'm surrendering to the one who actually has control over life and over death. Let me pause here to mention, um, Andrew announced that on August 27th, last Sunday, we're really last official Sunday of summer, we were having our, our luau. It was a big hit last year, and the food was great, and we just hung out. It was a really fun day. We're going to start this year the luau at Adam and Christie's. They have a beautiful pool and such a nice view. It's really a pretty spot. We're going to start with a baptism. And if this is new to you and you're like, wow, you guys actually do this, we really do. We get into a body of water, and I do the talking. We don't... We don't ask you to talk in front of a whole group of people. Um, I'll talk more about this in the coming month. But we are going to actually practice this. Getting into a body of water that represents the tomb, and we're going to bury for a few seconds and raise to life exactly what Jesus did in his tomb as a way for us to see and feel this is what I'm choosing. I am choosing the resurrection of Jesus to, to lead me, to be in control of my life, to define who I am, rather than me continue to try to figure life out on my own. If you're interested, if you're curious, let us know. You can let us know on the app, our, our, our mobile app, or out in the lobby, or you can find one of us, one of the leaders, and you could just let us know, hey, I'm, I'm curious, I'd like to learn more. Okay, Acts 2.42. One of my favorite paragraphs in Scripture. They devoted themselves to these, you know, the 120 in Jerusalem and now the 3,000 additional. They devoted themselves to some practices. They didn't just call themselves believers in Jesus. They actually practiced. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The apostles' teaching is Scripture. They devoted themselves regularly, actively to learning God's words in Scripture. 
hearing what the apostles are teaching about who Jesus is and what he's come to this earth to do. What, is, what does it mean when Jesus said, I've come with the kingdom of God? To fellowship. Fellowship means to do life and to see life together with one another. Not just doing life together, but we're seeing the life of God in one another. We're in that kind of proximity to one another. We're, we're, we're eating together. We're in, we're in each other's lives enough that we're actually seeing what God is doing in our hearts. Isn't that interesting? That that's, you know, This is part of why we're hanging out today at the winery. There was an intentional... When, when Jesus created his church, he understood humans will only sustain... We will only sustain the good and the beauty and the growth of God in our lives when we do it together. When you try to follow God's heart on your own, you just end up discouraged. I've tried it. Everyone that I know tries it just ends up feeling like, I'm not hearing God. I don't know why this is so hard. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. This is like next level of fellowship. The breaking of bread is story-centered community. That's what breaking of the bread means. It's eating together, but it's eating together around stories. We are, as a regular discipline as a church, they're deciding we are going to eat together regularly. Because that is how, not only did Jesus model teaching so much of God's kingdom and the reality of God over dinner and meals. You can barely turn a page in any of the Gospels without seeing Jesus eating with people. But it is where we reveal just what's really going on in our lives and who we are and where we were and some of the hurt and some of the past and some of the good and that's happening that I've stepped into. And to prayer. Prayer is not just actively praying, God, we surrender our lives to you, but it's, it's living out worship. And that's what we see in the next few verses here. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. Imagine in divided America today. Imagine if something like this took hold. I'm going to start this paragraph over, and I just want you to think, not 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, group of, like, fervent followers of Jesus. Man, they were hardcore. Think about our society today. Like, what if you and I practiced this as a community, and it became this compelling picture of what could be? All right, so let me just start this paragraph over in verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles or, or those who were actively participating in the church. All the believers in the church were together and had everything in common. They sold property when needed. They actually sold possessions to help care for those in need. Every day, not once in a while, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and in one another's homes. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Can you imagine a culture where you're enjoying the favor of all the people? Because all they see is beauty and love 
and patience and laughter and some really good food and more laughter and love. And the Lord added as a result, this is how the chapter ends. This is the end of the section we're reading. The result of this kind of community and this kind of stepping into resurrection community is the Lord added to their number daily those who were being rescued, those who were being saved. And again, saved sounds like such a religious word. But saved in this context and in the New Testament means accepting Jesus' rescue from continuing in decreation. We were made to co-create with God. We were made to replicate life. In the garden, humans chose to be in control and we became decreators. Murder happens in the early pages of Genesis. And humanity starts spiraling because we took control and we became decreators. Being saved is being rescued back to the plan of making us the image of God. Now, if you were born and raised in the United States in the second half of the 20th century, as I was, or any time in the 21st century, that's, this, this is everybody, it means you have been taught individualism, self-reliance. This is what we're taught in society. It's not one school teacher or one parent who's taught us this. It's just ubiquitous in our society. You make yourself who you're going to be, an accomplished, successful person, someone who gets financially ahead, someone who has really great friends and community because they're liked or they're popular. We learned this in middle school and high school. The whole pressure of being popular so that you'll be in a certain type of community. We have understood individualism as a constant in our culture. And they are recipes for spiritual emptiness and loneliness, like true loneliness. You were made for community. You were designed for community. We are made in the image of God. In creation, in Genesis 1, the pronoun we and us, let us, God says. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are collaborating over creation. Let us make men and women in our image. That's the language. It's a very literal trans translation from the Hebrew. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in such community with one another, they are creating together. And they create one being in their image called humans. And ever since, we have been hardwired for community. And the church, created by Jesus, not the church that we see in the news a lot, not the church that starts wars, not the church that tells people how to vote certain ways, not that church, the church that actually looks like Jesus and sounds like Jesus and behaves like Jesus, that church is God's astonishing new expression of Eden until Jesus returns. So this is a picture in Acts 2 of what, for many of us, the next step of actually practicing the way of Jesus looks like. Not just attending church anymore. 
not sitting and listening to somebody talk, and then we go back into real life. Real life is us imaging more and more of what the reality of God is in this broken world. And we've got to do that together. We need each other's encouragers. We need to hear what God is doing in one another's lives to see what's possible in our own lives. You cannot survive spiritually without the fun and good and love and sincerity and closeness of Jesus' community. All right, in our just a couple of last minutes here, I want to just give you a practical. This is, I, I told you in my email this week, I'm going to tell you um, not just what the early church did as an early step in, in imaging God. I want to give you a practical, like waking up tomorrow morning, waking up on Tuesday, Tuesday and Thursday and Friday mornings, and what, what does it look like to actually connect with God? Because there's nothing worse than saying, God, okay, I'm in, I want to experience you, I want to hear you, speak, and then nothing happens. It can be super discouraging when we're investing this kind of time in, in this idea here at church, and then we go home and we practice it on our own and we feel like we're not hearing anything or we're not understanding the Bible when we pick it up to read it. So I want to give you this guide from the Lord's Prayer. Jesus in Matthew 6 teaches us how to pray. And he starts in verse 5 and he's telling us, don't be like hypocrites and don't do prayer for attention. Don't use big impressive words. So that's how he starts in teaching us how to really pray how to really connect with God. And then he gets super practical. And he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy, so high and perfect and different is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay. We've known, we've, we've known this. We understand this is the Lord's Prayer. I've told you before about my high school baseball coach who would, just had the worst language and mouth on the planet, but then he'd always lead us in the Lord's Prayer right before every game, which still makes me laugh. What, the, the, what Jesus is telling us here is, I'm not giving you exact words, and if you just say these magical words, something different's going to happen. It's not about the word for word and memorizing it and getting it just right. That's not what Jesus is telling us. He's giving us a model and so I'm going to read this through one more time before we close here. And I'm encouraging you, and if you want to, you know, um, if you want to screenshot this, and I'll share this by email, but if, if this will help you when you get up tomorrow morning to spend time connecting with God, I, it's really helped me over the years, and I think it will help you as well. I'm going to go through the Lord's Prayer again, and I'm going to show you what Jesus is actually telling He's saying, I'm about to give you a model. I'm about to give you a pattern for how to approach God, how to actually posture yourself towards God. What we tend to be taught is we pray for Aunt Susie, you know, who broke her hip, and then we, we pray for just general kinds of things. Jesus is saying, start with your focus on who God is. When you approach God to connect with him, when you're actually serious about practicing the way of Jesus and practicing prayer that works, don't just choose random things to talk about. Start, make your beginning point, who is God? 
I'm going to actually think about who you are. I'm going to remember who you are. You dwell in the space of heaven or that space that is perfect where there is no disease, there is no aging, there is no disappointment or brokenness. Our Father who's in that space in heaven, holy and pure and perfect and without flaw, is who you are. It is remarkable how prayer takes root in us and you start to see and understand and perceive things from God's Spirit when you begin your focus on the goodness, the greatness, the power, the purity of God. Then focus not yet on what matters to you and what you need and what you want God to fix. Now focus on what God's purpose is. Focus on God's purpose and what he's doing in our world. This is the next part of prayer. May your kingdom come, the power and good and level setting work of your hand, God, may that come to this broken world. May it happen in my neighborhood. May it happen with the people that I work with. May they experience and encounter the reality of God. May your will be done here on earth as it is in the place that we all crave. We're sick of disease. We're sick of saying goodbye to loved ones. We're sick of going to funerals and we're sick of division. What we're craving is what we were made for. And Jesus has told us, pray that by following me, that you will actually, living in and walking in and breathing in resurrection, that you will actually be replicating more of what it is to experience hope and life in this broken world. You start with those two focuses in prayer, I'm telling you the rest of prayer is just going to be easier. See, this is selfless prayer. This is connecting to what matters to, to God. And you can do this in a, a few minutes in the morning. God... I've got a busy day. I've got this deadline, this meeting starting. Oh my gosh, I can't figure out my kids this week. I'm stressed, but I'm going to start with who you are and your greatness and your good. And you came, Jesus, ultimately to reverse this world from death and hurt and harm. And I get to be part of it. So may it happen. May I this week be part of your will happening in this world. Then finally, we talk to God about our needs. And what he's doing in our hearts and in our lives. Give us what we need today. Give me what I need. Help me to figure out this work situation. I'm providing for my family. I'm trying. God, take care of these needs. Correct my heart where I've been wrong. Help me to forgive others who've wronged me. This, following this pattern and this model is such, such... It's so relevant to actually connecting with God's heart. You're, you're inviting God's spirit to be leading your prayer time. Instead of sitting there like, okay, Brad's been talking about connecting with God. Here I am, God. Uh, and we just start kind of coming up with stuff. And then we get bored, and then we start thinking about the commanders. Magic Johnson is now an owner of the commanders. And five minutes later, I realize, oh, I'm supposed to be praying. I'm thinking about Magic Johnson. That's what happens when we're trying to make up stuff to pray about. Jesus gave us the pattern. Okay, we're going to talk more about this next week. We'll, we'll just kind of pick up where we're leaving off here today. I hope this is encouraging. Jesus came not to start a religion, 
the last thing he was interested in. Jesus came to turn dead things and guilt and loneliness and the trajectory of this world into a new direction that's moving us back toward Eden. And you and I, as following him, living in his life, we get to be part of it. It's the most exciting idea on planet Earth, as far as I'm concerned. We, we, we saw in Florida a few minutes of a space launch, a rocket launch. And I follow SpaceX, and you guys know that. Google's doing super cool stuff today. It's, I love innovation and technology. The most exciting idea on planet Earth is a church that looks and sounds and behaves like Jesus. There's nothing like it. Jesus, thank you for the reality that you are a God that didn't leave us in the chaos and destruction of humans that want to be in control of ourselves. That is a world that doesn't work. And you could have been frustrated. You could have thrown up your hands. You could have gone to start another universe somewhere. Not only did you not give up on us, you came here to bring Eden, to bring life, even life over death, back to this planet. And you want that for each of us, and you want us to live that out in this broken world. God, we're not trying to be perfect. We're just trying to be better. We're, we're, we're interested in practicing you so we become better and better imagers of the good and love and creativity that is you. Thank you for this church and these people. Uh, God, we give you our week and, and fill our week with more good. May we speak and live out more of your good and hope and life this week, Jesus. Amen. Amen.